I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome once again to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is your host as ever, Matt Dixon, and this week... Two episodes, two episodes with one guest. It must be a special guest. It is indeed. We are joined, and we are lucky to be joined, by Jerry Rodriguez, the Jerry Rodriguez of Tower 26, one of the preeminent swim experts in the world of triathlon, a great friend, a mentor to me. And if you know Jerry at all, you know that he is not a man of few words. And you also know me by me. I can ramble on with the best of them. So what we did is we decided to make two parts of this to make the show length more digestible. I'm also going to make an executive decision. I'm cutting out and I know I can hear you crying. There's no jingle this week. We're not going to do word of the week. I'm going to save up my word of the week. We're not going to get the music. We're not going to get questions this week. This is a succinct, straight in conversation with Jerry Rodriguez of Tower 26. Hope you enjoy. Well, guys, the meat and potatoes this week, as ever. And for me personally, this is a special one. And I think it's me a special one for you guys as well listening. Today, we welcome of Tower 26, Jerry Rodriguez. Jerry, thanks for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me. Very, uh, very well. Thank you. And uh, the reason that I said this is a special one, uh, I'm going to say this up front, but uh, you and I have known each other for many, many years now. And in fact, that the way that we met was when I was uh, right at the uh, coming towards the basement of my lowly professional triathlon career. But I actually swam under you, which I don't think many people actually know that, that you were my coach when I was a, a triathlete for the swimming portion. Well, it was great having you. We had some epic sessions. I remember uh, coaching you, but also swimming a few sessions with you and going home and sleeping for about six hours after. I know it was uh, it was the glory days. But for you, for for you guys that are listening, that have not met Jerry, we're going to learn uh, a lot more about uh, Jerry as a coach and his lens on performance. And uh, and Jerry, when I'm asking you on the the show today. Uh, for listeners, I think many of our listeners listen to your very successful podcast, uh, Tower 26 with, uh, with Jim Lubinsky. I cannot hope to, uh, to parallel Jim's energy and enthusiasm that he does on your, on your podcast. But, um, uh, but many listeners know that and it's a wonderful resource for open water and triathlon based swimming. And uh, and I would actually argue it's a great resource for for young coaches and athletes to understand more about the sport in global. It's not just swimming. But today we're not going to talk too much about swimming specifically because I just want to send listeners to your podcast to listen to that because you have such a wealth of information there. Why recreate the wheel? I want to talk about performance, career development, leadership, and yourself as a as a coach. And so we're going to dive in who knows where this is going to go as uh, as we know we both can talk and so um so we will see where it goes but as we do with every guest i think it's really important to get context and so i'd love to i'd love to go back and and for you it's going a long way back captain uh, let's go back to your childhood tell us tell us about your background growing up family etc this sounds like a therapy session. Let's go back <laughs> to childhood. <laughs> it's, it is. Trust me. I'm taking on a journey that you don't know. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I grew up in, in the Caribbean, in Trinidad, and uh, introduced to swimming at age seven. And um, from nine years old, I was uh, our coach. Interestingly, this is 50 years ago, um, had an idea that he loved open water swimming. And four months of the year, we swam. We did three or four of our weekly training sessions at the beach in the morning before school. And that occurred for the last, uh, typically September through December. And I did that for, you know, eight or nine years before I left Trinidad to move to the U S. So and just a one dimensional athlete swimming only. It, it was at that time. literally one with the ocean. Yeah. And, uh, one with the sea. Yeah. Thousands of miles of swimming, um, 
but lots of experience from it, which was certainly helpful. And and education, what, what's your educational background? I mean, Trinidad, you're going to have a, a British influence there, I assume. Well, of course, uh, at that time, uh, like many others, you guys, the Brits ruled the world. So we were um, a British colony at one time. So I went to uh, my high school uh, education is um, is British based and uh, with the uh, in our certificates from Cambridge for O levels. So those of us you guys who grew up in um, in Europe, you'd recognize O levels and A levels certainly at uh, out of your school. So I did the O levels, and then after that, I started A levels and um, then moved to the U.S. Right then. So interestingly, you know, in the United States, as you know, get out of high school somewhere around eighteen or so. At O levels, we were finished at. I had just turned sixteen, started A levels, did about almost a year of it, and then left right as I turned seventeen, two or three weeks later, and moved to Southern California to go to junior college, and then eventually got an athletic scholarship to Pepperdine University. And that's where, and the athletic scholarship, of course, was was in swimming, yeah. In swimming, and uh, but I had to go to junior college initially because I really wasn't that good of a swimmer. I mean, I was in triathlon terms, I was fine, but in the swimming terms, I wasn't that great. So I went to try to get faster for two years. And um, uh, so I did two seasons at junior college first. Going back to your, your swimming career, uh, I want to give you some context of, of what training was like then. And, And I think that you came out of a very similar training program as my collegiate swimming career so i'd love you to go back and just give some listeners the scope of of what the training was like for a swimmer well training changed a lot from around the early 70s and uh from about 1973 uh volume got introduced quite a bit into swimming as it did in running it is kind of interesting the boom of running and and the volume of swim training uh, uh coincided and so from my era, when I started college in the U.S., at least in uh, January of 1980, I immediately went from Trinidad, where I was swimming uh, seven workouts a week, maybe, and probably 40K a week, to immediately swimming 11 workouts a week at 70 to 80,000 uh, yards a week. And, and frequently, as you know, we have those 100K weeks. And it was a, a massive shock. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was a, felt like a, a major earthquake in, in a, a overload of training. And, 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 and especially in the light that we only swam, as you know, most swimming events are four minutes and shorter. So I sort of was never able to quite wrap my head around why I needed that much volume. Well, that, and, you know, interestingly, I mean, the, the, the world of swimming didn't change very much. I left in the very early 90s to come over here. And at the time... I, like you, got a swimming scholarship, and at the time I was swimming four to at the most five times a week, accumulating 10 to 12 hours a week. And uh, and as soon as I arrived here, the same as you, we were well north of 20 hours, 70, 80, 100K weeks for the same thing. And, and over the course of the four years, I I got very, very fit and managed to get about half a second faster over the course of, uh, of 100 metres <laughs> brushstrokes. So. <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it, that we, we, we would spend the volume of hours training, uh, and in your case, swimming 100 or 200 breaststroke, a minute or a two-minute event, but you're, you're actually spending 25 hours of training and you're only getting half a, half a second faster, like you said. And my position was always every single athlete of our era, at least, every single athlete, including the absolute sprinters that swam the 50 freestyle, they were all trained in the pool to, to race a 10-kilometer race. Everyone with the engine was that big, that fit. It, it, it's absolutely true. And then the, the other things that, that I think are really interesting was the, uh, I'll use a trendy word now, but the lack of polarization in the training. I, I, I have these, and maybe it is like, uh, you know, sort of revisionist history in a way, but every day was threshold. And, yes. uh, you know, every day was threshold. And, then, and it wasn't until... My last year in swimming, 96, yeah, 96 because of uh, the uh, Olympic trials here, that we were allowed hydration on the pool. Oh, I recall, yes, yes. So there was zero hydration. There was no consideration of fueling and nutrition. In fact, we thought the the Stanford and Cal's of the world were crazy to be given such guidance 
uh, as we were sort of feasting on just volume and no quality of food sort of thing. It's quite quite an amazing cycle. Huh? It really is. And, and, you know, the interesting part was, although I grew up in a third world country with, um, you know, sort of perhaps one could argue rudimentary coaching, the coach that I had was still sort of visionary because in the 70s, he actually allowed us to bring something to work out to, to, to fuel on, to drink. And we didn't know what we were doing. I was bringing lime juice. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. what, you know, I picked some limes home off the tree and put, make some juice with it and bring it to work out. But of course, put a lot of sugar in it. And that's probably what helped. But I mean, at least we were starting to, to do something. But for the most part, once I was in college in the, here in the U.S., um, you're, you're absolutely right. No, uh, no fueling at that time. And and exactly the same as me. I would say very basic coaching from our end. It was just sort of you know junior club coaching. But we had this stuff in England called Kendall Mint Cake. Our, our English links listeners are going to laugh when I mention that. <laughs> and uh, it was like a, a minty sort of chocolate covered. And we would have that on the pool deck. And I came here and doubled the volume. And you know I was consistently under fueled. But uh, but but I think that that. You know, I, I always identify myself as a world-class trainer, and I, I think you're the same. And, and you identify a little more. I have more ego than you, so I say, hey, I wasn't that bad of a swimmer. <laughs> you claim that you're abysmal by collegiate standards, and yet, <laughs> and yet, you became open water swim coach, uh, so, um, open water world champion. Uh, what, what year? What year was that? Well, you know, I was open water world masters champion, but we have okay. to look back at. at 30 years ago and there weren't that many athletes racing at sort of the professional open water circuit. There were about 30 worldwide. Most of the faster athletes, the the several thousand that did other races were racing the shorter races. So the, the athletes that were, um, let's say the the USA swimming's athletes that won their five K open water race and their 10 kilometer open water race and their 25 kilometer open water race would come race an hour events um uh, so i would get a chance to race all of our national champions um and then at the world championships and masters um it was you'd get everybody then actually you'd get some of the world champions from usa swimming that represented our national team and master swimmers so it was at that time at least the masters races were more competitive than actually what would be called the true the true world championship Back then, it's very different now. I mean, the level of, course, of competitive yeah. open water swimming is a uh, different landscape. But then I was racing against the best in the world. And and with that, you were in open water. This has context. I'm asking this for a reason. But uh, but you were racing swimmers that were, and I say this in parentheses, much faster than you. In other words, if we put those same swimmers in a swimming pool, they would be swimming faster pace per hundred, etc. And yet you were routinely beating some of these guys, yeah? I would have no business being in a, a race lineup with many of those athletes. It, it would be similar to, uh, you know, at the elite end in running, the, the best runners in the world are running 13 minutes for a 5K. I would be the equivalent of a, almost a 15-minute 5K runner. Not a terrible runner, but definitely not world-class. Uh, but... Um, because many of those pool swimmers didn't acquire the skill set uh, for open water, and I had a, a elevated skill set, um, the playing field was a little bit more even. And and knowing you as a coach, and this is a part that I've I've always really appreciated as a coach, sort of the thinking coach, the tactical coach, the it, it's open water skill development. And then it's the tactical mindset. And you've told me several stories. In fact, way too many stories over way too many beers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I'm hoping to weed one out. You, you told me a, a couple of stories. One, one that, that helped you facilitate beating athletes that are better than you with pure familiarity environment and outfoxing. Uh, there was one particular story with uh, I was called moving around in a circle in the race. Uh, is that a two-minute story? Do you think you can tell? Oh, that was a fun, a fun one. In fact, I was sort of I'd finished college. I was coaching and working and uh, mid mid to late thirties, maybe twenty years ago. Or so, and I was invited back to Trinidad to do their local open water race, which I'd won a number of times when I was a teenager and into my early twenties. 
And, you know, I'm in the sunset years of my career, obviously. And um, we lined up to start this five kilometer race. And unbeknownst to me, which I found out at the finish, that the um, a couple of the kids on the team uh, that were U.S. based at that time uh, in the collegiate program, uh, swimming for whatever the, the colleges were, were told by their coach, now you're way faster than this Rodriguez guy. Uh, here's here are his times in the pool. You you are he doesn't even belong in the same swimming pool as you do. So you've got a lot more speed. Just but he's open water tactically smart. So here's what I want you to do: when a gun goes off, stay on his feet, draft him the entire race, and then at the very end, you know you can swim faster than him. So just kill him at the finish line. And that was the tactics that I found out, you know, post race. And during the race, Matt, I mean, I did everything to lose these few guys. Within a few minutes, the field had weeded out to about a handful of us at the front. And I'm leading the field, and and um, these guys are sitting on my feet, and I made a couple of you know, tactical moves that didn't really work out. And no matter what I did, they were still there, just these little leeches right on. So finally, I did this, uh, what I called a circle move, where basically I swam a giant circle and ended up behind them. <laughs> and then I and then I stopped and then they stopped and they were looking forward and they couldn't find me. And at that point, I had my goggles on top of my head and I'm looking at them. And then they turned around and saw me. So now we're in eye contact with each other. And I looked at them. And I said, so what are you going to do now? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, in a race situation, you always think you have to do something. Meaning you have to you have to move. Right. You've got to swim. So they just took off and started swimming. And then I obviously tucked in on their feet and then made some other tactical moves from back there later on in the race to create some lateral distance and then made a surge where they didn't even, I, I, I made a move to this. I, I looked at where they were breathing, recognized they were right-sided breathers. So I moved over to the left, made a tactical lateral left move and then surged, uh, made a surge, which it, it took them a while to see it. And by that time I'd already developed about a 10 meter gap and, um, and therefore I ended up winning the race. So it's just a little, you know, the thing is, we always have to be thinking when you, you and I swam, it was always about a time, right? It yeah. was, okay, coach, and you set a time. Here's the time we want you to do in the 100 breaststroke at this meet. Or here's what we want to do at our conference meet or our national championship meet. And swimming was then, and still is, extremely time-based. And I remember coaching uh, and helping Lenny Kriselberg, who you might know, the, the, yeah. the Olympian Wonderful backstroker, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean the, the you know best the best Great of that time, yeah. and um, and we were chatting about racing, and and this is when he was uh, now getting towards the height of his career, and you know he was telling me about the time that he wanted to do, and I said, Lenny, you can go to the Olympic Games and break the world record and hit your time, your target time, whatever that time is, but get third. You race to win. Let the time take care of itself. Learn to race to win. Uh, you know, whatever winning is for you. The message here is winning could be different things for different people. But in Lenny's case, it was winning overall. Sure. And it was a, a lens shift for him in how to race. Don't just race for a time. Race to win the race, whatever that meant. So we set a strategy for him in a particular race, 200-meter backstroke, uh, to win. It didn't matter what the time was. And that occurred. He happened to beat the world record holder in the race on one. And that completely changed his his mindset. So the message is learn, learn more tactical racing. Swimmers come from our background of, of just racing for a time. Once you get into open water, it's a completely different game. It's no different than running the mile on the track or, um, uh, or any bike race, any uh, stage race, uh, whatever it may be. So that's where I've learned a lot of my skills and teachings from is watching a lot of track races, especially the mile or 1500 meters. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I have, you know, going back to the old days, v VCRs, on the, uh, VHS uh, tapes of the Paris-Roubaix, of the Tour de France, of the, the Giro, all these races that I would just sit and study tactical moves and go, you know what, we need this in swimming. <laughs> and then I'd go apply them to swimming. Well, and, and it's certainly, you know, transitioning and, you know, I'd, I'd love, I could talk just about this subject with you for, for the next hour and a half, but uh, but if we if we sort of, correlate that to your coaching you're 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 now sort of great success as a coach and and your program's success tower 26's success much of what you're talking about there in many ways the skill development the tactics the the lack of obsession of metrics i guess at a global level what are the components for you that have that have 
facilitated your success as a coach? Well, I, you know, I think there, there, there are lots of things to, well, one, I should say thank you for the, the compliment. I'm not even sure how we define success, but it, I guess 36 years later, by hook or by crook, I've sort of found a way to, to get okay mm-hmm. at it. Um, but uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's the application, it's dedication, it's consistency, and it's consistency over a period of time. It's not just being consistent for, for three months and then you take time off it, it's consistent with a with long consistency with longevity. Uh, it's it, it, acute attention to to presence, um, detail. I mean, there, you know, success lies in a, in a couple of channels. Uh, you know, we can say uh, obviously it's it's the journey itself. Okay, but uh, we always have to nail down what I call the big boulders, the two or three key things that generally account for 90% of success in almost whatever we're doing, whether it's coaching or it's marriage or it's your career. It's normally just a handful of things that really, if you nail those down and hit the bullseye and focus on them day in, day out, you get tremendous success up at that 90% level. If yep. you want to get absolutely to the apex at the top, then all the other 50 things or 100 things, whatever the numbers are, all the details then becomes important. You then have to start working on all the details. And that's where it just takes time. I mean, it takes years of big boulders and then a bunch of minutia and be very process driven. It, it, it's, it's, I mean, there's there's a reason at, at Purple Patch we have a saying, nail the basics. And, and it's because it's not – it's not because – uh, it, it's a cute thing to say. It's because if you can nail the basics and, you know, f- for you as a coach, I think it's, it's creating the fundamental big boulders that are going to move athletes forward and make sure that you anchor your, your philosophy, your teaching, your coaching around it. It's the same in, for an athlete themselves, getting the, the fundamental basics right. As you say, it gets you, we say 95% of the way there. You said 90%. <laughs> the percentages are not that important. The concept is the most important thing, I think, globally, yeah? Yeah, and, and at the core of that is always remember whatever decision, at least for me, whatever decisions I make, uh, it, it's always customer-based or, or, in this case, athlete-based. You know, the, the, the customer, the athlete, is at the, at the core of everything because whatever you're doing your end result is you're trying to make them better at uh, at their, their the skills that they need to develop, which basically at the same time you're evolving and improving your coaching career, right? Your 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 ability to be a good coach. Uh, you so, know, w- one of the things because I've always uh, identified you loosely as a loosely, very loosely. I don't want you to scout your head, but as a, as a mentor in coaching and. Uh, one of the things that I, I gleaned from you very early on, I think in many ways the most important thing, is a continual thirst or curiosity for the why. And uh, and the continued evolution of how you do things. Because you mentioned 36 years later, but you're still, correct me if I'm wrong, you're still learning, you're still evolving, you're still growing. And, and I think that that continual growth mindset is really, really important for, for you, for any coach, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I think you and I, having that similar background in many, uh, especially swimmers of our era, even, even today, we were in programs where we were just told what to do. Yeah. And dare you question the coach why, <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, and there was a coach present at every single session and uh, they were, you know, the end all. And after my career, of, uh, collegiate career of swimming, I, and well, during it, even I started towards the end of it asking, well, why are we doing this? Why are we swimming, you know, 80,000 meters while my event's three minutes long or two minutes long or four minutes long or whatever it might be? And once I became a coach, I, I started questioning, and not from a rude perspective, just from a, well, let me get to the end of the, the how do I optimize for the athletes that I'm going to coach? What's the best thing for them? So I started asking the why of everything. Why did we do this? Why did my coach give me a descending set? Or why did he ask me to swim a threshold? Or why this and why that and why this drill? And over the years, it's, it's, it's the, the constant 
using your word, thirst for it. Um, and, and one of the reasons, Matt, uh, sincerely, and I'm not being self-deprecating, but uh, ultimately nobody um, has a monopoly on information or education. Yeah. And, and, and the day that you or I or any coach or any CEO or executive thinks they've made it, it's their last best day. It's, it's time. Yes, it, it, exactly. It's time to retire. Yes, it, it's time to retire because there are always Matt Dixons and, and, and other terrific coaches coming along or, or who are already there, but maybe not in limelight yet, uh, that are either way smarter or way uh, more, you know, a higher skill set, whatever it might be. And I'm always, it's not that I'm nervous, but I'm always looking towards those up and comers because they're also teaching me. And I'm pretty open-minded to listen to anyone who wants to talk about, you know, the, the things I'm interested in, in this case, you know, uh, triathlon swimming coaching. So uh, we get calls all the time from, from, and I'm sure you do too, of athletes that, uh, coaches that want to come coach with you or alongside you. And I just spent an hour on the phone yesterday with a gentleman from South Africa. Um, and, you know, he's grateful for, for the help and asked what he can do to, to return the help. Uh, Rory was his name. And I said, pass it along to somebody else. There's nothing to do for me. You make sure that you do the same for the next coach coming along. Oh, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. We have, we have many coaches on our programs. And uh, sometimes you know, people say, aren't you worried they're going to steal your stuff? And it's, no, I want them to contribute and share. And, and in fact, really bringing it to, to the real world for listeners a great example, you know, just the just the other week, I know that you had Paul Newsom from Swim Smooth. Oh, terrific! On, yes, on the Wonderful. show, yeah. That, so there's, if there are sort of, uh, you know, two experts in field that you that w people would assume would be competitive and with a closed book and a a hidden set of secrets not to tell anyone in the world, Jerry Rodriguez and Paul Newsom, you're both spending the day with each other, sharing learning from each other and um and i think it's i think it's fantastic and, and then another great example and yes we are friends we have got history but uh one of our professional athletes heading down just just this last uh two or three weeks to to spend time with you for a different lens a different contribution to help me help the athlete and uh and i think that's a really important lovely thing that that is, is critical for the growth of coaching globally. Well, we have to remove ego, and it's, it's not about us, from my perspective. It's about okay. your, 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 your athlete. And, uh, and in fact, you and I, let's, since we're the coaches talking, you and I may be aligned in philosophy. Let's, let's just make an assumption for the purpose of this, uh, this point here. And the athlete is swimming with me since this is a swimming conversation and coaching conversation. They're swimming with me and you and I are completely aligned. And I would use certain words or certain phrases or certain tone to express uh, what the message I'm trying to get across. And the athlete doesn't receive it well. And they go to Matt Dixon's session and you've used with the same knowledge and the same alignment. You may have used different words or you use a different tone to it or you just a different way of expressing it. And all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. Uh, and the athlete gains has benefit. So I think collaborating with other coaches and having athletes go to other coaches and, and that's in everybody's best interest. I mean, which unfortunately doesn't occur as much as it should, in my opinion. But. No, it doesn't. And, uh, and there are, there are lots of reasons probably for that, but we, we won't go into it today. <laughs> I, I want to ask because it's the, the coach can drive success of the, the athletes, but another thing I think that can drive success of the program of athletes is this sense of community, of belonging. And you already have two communities now. You have a physical community, a destination, the Tower 26 program, which, you know, for, for, if, if anyone gets to go and experience one of your open water swims on the beach, it, it's truly a, a magical experience for athletes in in the sport you've also got an, an online community a remote community right now talk to me about what you see as the, the leader of that community of of that of their sort of contribution to the success of the program well you know at the core of it always is terrific service right and because it's about the athlete the, the participant 
And um, again, from the coaching side of it, it's consistency, delivering the message frequently and so on. And but ultimately, the, the, the relationship with your athletes has to be uh, at least for optimal success, in my opinion, has to be collaborative. So you try to foster that. And, um, and, and one of the things, uh, and also it's helpful having a huge amount of accountability. I, I think that's a, an important in, ingredient for success of, of, of athletes, which makes remote coaching more challenging because you're, you're not seeing the athletes. So therefore it's important to have a feedback system yep. or the ability to communicate with them. Um, but it, it's like any relationship, Matt. I mean, with your, our wives, our peers, it's, it's you have to have mutual respect, and, and it's, it's a constant collaboration, and be willing to recognize if we've made mistakes. Um, God knows, I'm sure I've made many over the years. Oh, you've made a lot. I mean, just with me when you were coaching me. Okay? <laughs> well, I, di I didn't get any faster. No, I'm joking. <laughs> we did have world class workouts, though. <laughs> oh, we had some killer workouts. That was. I felt. I felt sorry for the the other lanes when we were swimming together at the same time. But uh... I remember, by the way, doing a swim set with you. We did three fifteen hundreds, the yards. And and the only reason I remember this is because we were all three of us. We were three of us in a lane, yourself and me and Randy Eikoff, if you recall. Yeah, yeah. And we all put each other in the pain cave. And I designed the workout with, as a pace line for the three fifteen hundreds, And we'd switch off leaders every 100. And all it was yards. And you were switching off, meaning you stopped at the wall each 100. You waited till the, the two people ahead, of, uh, two people behind you went. And then you pushed off. So you waited a few seconds. You did get a few seconds rest on the wall. I remember we were swimming 105 speed per hundred with that rest uh, on these three 1500s. I was just, I think I blew every gasket I had by the end of that session. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, that's one of those, I think uh, all of us that have sort of trained competitively, really competitively have those, that, that is one of those that I actually thought as my coach, you were mentally ill. <laughs> and uh, I genuinely, I'd, I have that. And my, my one, my one swimming story, uh, and, and we're going all the way back to the start of this conversation now, but I can't, can't help bearing in mind that I was a, a 100 and 200 breaststroke swimmer. I remember our coach gave us a 3000 for time. Uh, that nothing reeks of specificity than oh, 3000 yes. for time to get ready for a hundred meters breaststroke. And, uh, and, and I, I remember have been so fit and, uh, and I swam the first uh, the first thousand. I was out in ten fifteen. We're swimming in yards, and I was out in ten fifteen. And then uh, the next thousand, I was uh, ten minutes. Uh, so swimming one minute pace per hundred. And the last thousand, I managed to go uh, nine thirty eight in the uh, wow. thousand. So I went under th thirty minutes for the three thousand. That was it. And then the next weekend, he said, "Okay, you're going to swim the thousand in the uh, one of the dual meets well, that was one of the distances if you remember we used to have to swim the thousand of sometimes. course yes so i i, I swam the thousand and went 942 <laughs> so, <laughs> you see you didn't do those two one thousands warm-up I, I didn't, didn't have the warm-up <laughs> didn't have the warm-up and didn't swim very well in the hundred breaststroke i want to point out so uh, well, it's, it's, it's yeah it's all the the old who knows what all the reasons were for doing you know third you know three thousand yards and one thousands to swim a hundred breaststroke but that's toughened, what it was then. Toughened us up, I tell you. I, I, you know, toughened us up. But uh, I, I want to transition because we've touched on actually athletic progression, and uh, and I want to go through and, and become a little athlete centric. And uh, and I think that we're we're aligned on some of this stuff. But I'd be delighted. I want to talk about development of athletes, and um, I think that this is is a, a really important subject for athletes that are either just getting into the sport and are lured by Ironman and half Ironman uh, or, uh, or athletes that have very lofty aspirations, been doing the sport and they either they want to qualify or they want to podium or they want to become world champion and they come in with these very lofty aspirations. How do you believe an athlete should set up their lens to development? Interesting question. It, it, well, I'm, you're correct. It's it, it's challenging because Ironman has done a terrific job. It's a business, and they've done a, 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 an excellent job at marketing their brand and their sport and their events. I mean, they're an event production company. So 
the half Ironman race or the Ironman distance first, and then the half Ironman distance that became more popular after the fact of, of Ironman have become sort of the trophies that stand out there. And um, that's where athletes tend to gravitate to, uh, especially those now coming into the sport, because that's the sort of the sexy thing. And um, it becomes difficult uh, and, uh, because I think you're sort of putting the cart before the horse. I think we need a much more progressive approach. And, and you have to couple that additionally with, yeah, at least if you believe in my personal philosophy, in the sense of we somewhat live in an instant society mm-hmm. where if you, as a foreign magazine owner, I mean, I helped even write some of the copy for it. I mean, you look at the covers of publications, which I used to, you know, 20 years ago when I was involved, you know, I remember when I first bought the publications and I would go stand at a newsstand and I, and I look back and look at magazine covers, that there was one thing that struck me on, on the magazine covers. It doesn't matter the, 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 the field that we're in, whether it's horse riding or swimming or golfing, anything, uh, uh, Fortune magazine, whatever it may be. It was a common theme. Uh, three tips to get something quickly. Uh, you know, um, here are five things to do to get abs in a month. Yeah. Uh, here are the two things to for instant success. Here's uh, three ways to conquer this in, in 30 days. I mean, everything was two or three tips and in a short period of time. And we're sort of being trained to think that way from a publishing perspective, at least, right? And and some people actually believe that's the real world. Well, that that that's not the real world. Uh, that's the selling world. That's the marketing world. Yeah. Uh, so you have this sort of society drive. Uh, that's biting at you. And then you also have the the, the terrific job that the Ironman's done in marketing the sport. So you want to go in and do this sexy thing, the Ironman or the half Ironman, but and let's take an extreme case, but you didn't grow up athletic. Uh, you know, you're a great student and you have spent a couple hours a week doing something, but you generally weren't an athlete like Matt Dixon. And now you've decided to do a triathlon and the first thing you've picked is the Ironman. Well, it's not the place to start in my opinion, if you want longevity, uh, if you want it to be a lifestyle uh, and have, you know, a, a period of time where it's built in, um, where you take your family on vacations over years and stay in the sport for 10, 15 years, it's not where we should, should start. We have to sort of help our athletes recognize, well, here's the starting point. Smaller races carrot them along. And I would add to it as well, the the interesting inability of some athletes to draw the parallels of what actually has created success for them in their real world. And then when they transition that to their own athletics, they become dumb, basically. And, uh, well, it's the old, yeah, it's the old, uh, you know, smart in school, dumb on the bus type thing. Uh, you, you get outside of your arena and then you're just sort of not able to really know what to do. And, and unable to draw the parallels and you know just just the other day talking to a person that did their first race and was really disappointed and basically their first set of adversity even though actually it was a good performance but uh but i wanted to podium and uh you know i'm i'm used to selling companies in five or ten years and and yet in their first two months that they they don't manage to have this sort of lens of sustainability in many ways it's interesting you said that, and that is another piece that I should have added in. We're also trained, especially, and, and if you look at the, the triathlon audience, uh, highly educated, uh, I believe over 95% of college degrees, um, 45% or somewhere in that range have uh, postgraduate degrees, and uh, uh, close to 18% or so have uh, PhDs. So a very, very highly educated audience. When you go to MBA school, what are you taught to? What you t- one of the things you're taught is a five-year exit strategy. You start your business and, wh- and how, do you, how do you sell it in five years? Well, a little bit of that's fool's gold to some extent, yeah. and um, in my opinion. Uh, I recognize why it's taught, but that gets carried across into the sort of triathlon world coupled with the instant society thing. And it's to your point of uh, I want to get on a podium in, in my first race or whatever it might be. Well, it just doesn't work that way. I'm, I'm sorry, especially if you don't come from an athletic background. And, we, you know, you can't rush wisdom. You can't rush physiology. And, uh, well, that's tweetable, isn't it? But uh, um, it, it's, it just doesn't work that way. Um, now, now, I want to carry on down this line of, of long-term development, but I want to bring coaching into it. Because I think there's a there's a couple of things that that happen with coaching now. Coming back to accountability as well, uh, I think for longevity and long term development, 
a collaborative, if you are coached, and we'll get to that in a little while, but a collaborative relationship is critical. A truthful collaborative uh, relationship is critical for, for ultimately athletic success. Would you agree with that statement? Well, well, absolutely. And, and, but that collaboration, um, has a, a little bit, uh, the coach gets to be the governor of that collaboration from the perspective of, although it's collaborative, a person who has one, either high athletic IQ or two, tremendous athletic experience, uh, perhaps has a higher voice than someone who doesn't. Yep. So although it's collaborative, you have to actually know how to weigh, weigh the station there on how much input the athlete actually has regarding the the technical portion of the journey and the structural portion, not not regarding family and food and all those types of things. But Yeah, you, 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 I mean, you're getting to the essence of what I think is a good coach, the nuance behind uh, how much ownership and input does an athlete have and that might be very different from a high athletic IQ as you like to call it athlete relative to someone that perhaps has slightly less athletic IQ not general IQ but athletic IQ C- correct and and what happens at least my experience and, and perhaps I'm sure you've likely we've both coached lots and lots of athletes over the years um, when the athlete becomes smarter than the coach uh, or they think they're smarter, or they want to deviate uh, and do their own their own ingredients. That can be challenging, and it's difficult to manage, obviously. Um, but ultimately, the yield is lower. I mean, their, their their return typically is lower, providing the coach is someone like yourself or whomever that has tremendous experience. But you know, there's the re- there's a reason you went to the coach to start with. Example, there's a reason if I hired an attorney to take on a, a problem that I have, but I'm telling him how to do his job or her how to do her job, or I went to a doctor because something's wrong with me, and then I'm not taking their advice and doing something else. I mean, that, that'd be pretty silly, right? But 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 happens all the time, and I mean, you're getting to. You know, I would add to it. A coach athlete, a really successful coach athlete, it doesn't matter who you've chosen as your coach. It takes time as well, so there is well, a, there is an investment. But you know, specifically coach hopping, as I like to call it, and, and that's indigenous. Interestingly, in the sport of triathlon, relative to certainly our sport that we grew up in. I mean, in your lifetime, uh, I don't know how long you swam—maybe twenty years competitively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many coaches did you have total? Yeah, uh, two, two, three, three, <laughs> okay, three, three yeah, for I, you. I mean, I, and you had to change because you had to go to college, so you were forced to get a different coach, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So basically, you would have had two <laughs> if you didn't have to change. But here, it's it's a frequent uh, a, a, a revolving door. Not even a good coach has the opportunity at times to um, to really facilitate uh, athletes' um, progression if the athlete's gone in six months or one month or even a year. I mean, a collegiate program that has four years. It takes the coach a couple of years to really learn the athlete, and then the, be- the best yields come in the third and fourth year. Well, I, I, I struggle to think of one athlete, a single athlete, that has, you know, on their on their list uh, eight coaches over the course of a 10-year career that has certainly has maximized their, their, their potential, which I know is a hard thing to measure, but ultimately has created great sustainability and, and performance. I, I, I would struggle to, to name one, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, um, but there are some athletes. I mean, there are a few coming to my mind right now that like to be self-coached or very sort of. Uh, what I like to use is, they need to be um, unstable. They can't be harnessed. Yeah. They need a certain amount of freedom to make uh, make their own decisions. That's fine, but they always have to keep in mind they don't know as much as the coach. If if they believe in the coach that they have. And, um, and many like to go their own path and make their own decisions. And, and, and that's fine because that's based on experiences they've had. But also when you get into and this, and I apologize if this sounds like too much hubris, but you get a guy like me, he's got 35, 36 years of doing this. Um, uh, how do I gently say this? I've, I've forgotten more than most of those guys know. Yep. <laughs> so um, recognize at times that, We've coached many folks like you before, and, and somebody, even a, an elite age grouper or a, a very elite athlete, 
they have a, a, a four to ten year at the most shelf life. Okay. Yep. We're going to coach multiple athletes, multiple athletes of shelf lives. You know, if, if you if you're truly in the business of coaching for for your career, you will go through multiple generations of athletes every four or five to ten years. You're you're with another, you know, another world class level athlete. So there's a tremendous amount of experience from the coaches who've been around for a long period of time that the athletes should draw upon. I mean, if it's, especially if they have it, they have access to them. And I think it echoes, it's sort of two two points bubble out of that. The first is that, uh, interestingly, when it comes to methodology and, and athlete success and, and success of coaching athletes, there isn't actually any magic. There's no magic fairy dust. There's no magic bullet. And and athletes, while all unique and different, there are different types of athletes that we we as coaches draw parallels and see patterns and say, ah, this is the type of athlete. I mean, I'm, we could sit down and we could identify different types of athletes. Uh, we won't go through that today, but there there really is a patterns that emerge consistently, aren't there? Well, sure. It's it, it's because an athlete is. A person, and we find that in the in, in regular life, you have different personalities and, and gravitate to different, um, you know, whatever their thing is, their their weaknesses and their strengths, like like we have as coaches also. And our job with that comes with experience is learning to try to, you know, help guide them in in the right direction. So it's no different than being a parent. I mean, you you've got Baxter, and I've got a couple of growing kids, and. You're, you're constantly in the process of, of uh, one, patience, <laughs> but two, it's, it's, it's always delivering the message. And a lot of times it's the same message with high frequency, right? <laughs> yep. It's uh, yeah. absolutely. So none of this is real magical per se, but um, it's, it, it's constant mentoring and, and reminding, and, and, but always done with thoughtfulness and kindness and, and all the virtues that our parents taught us respectfulness and, and so on, but, you know, very important. Uh, 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 you missed sarcasm and irony and <laughs> bullying. That, that's a big feature. That's some of the pillars of my coaching. You're, you're too nice. <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about young coaches a little bit as sure. a part of this, because there, there are many people that do the sport, fall in love with it and want to coach and, uh, and aspirational in some way or another. And this you know, multi-sport or, or endurance sports, what are your thoughts or, or advice for, for coaches getting into it? What does it take to be a great coach? What's some advice that you can give them? You're asking these tough questions. I these know. are hard questions, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care about pinky entry on the swim. Uh, you can. <laughs> these are very sort of macro, at least I look at them as very sort of macroscope questions because you sort of have to also dive into to the the environment that you're we're in here. So since it's triathlon coaching, we we have a, an environment that's I believe to be challenging because of how the sport has evolved over the last forty years, right? And you and I grew up in a very highly structured and centralized uh, coaching operation um, uh, every, at the national governing level. You set up structures for regional levels, and at regional levels, you set up structures for state or, or, or um, city or county levels, and then you have all these clubs. And you just take the U.S. alone; they're probably close to ten thousand swimming clubs, and another six thousand masters clubs, and so many thousands of YMCA programs, and so on. And you, you have these, and every single club, every single one has a coach that's on the pool deck, uh, coaching and mentoring their athletes. So an athlete has actually hands-on coaching every single session. Yeah, as a swimmer. Now let's go to the triathlete. It's completely inverted. Uh, they don't have access to coaches mainly. The last stat I read was seventy-five percent of triathletes are uncoached. It used to be ninety percent not too long ago. Uncoached. The sport evolved differently. So the sort of coaching aspect to it, the professional side of the coaching aspect, is now is evolving and now trying to catch up to the demand of the need. So because of that, it's difficult, I think, for younger or aspiring, doesn't have to be young, but aspiring coaches to be successful. And successful means uh, many ways to define success, but certainly if you want it as a career, um, it's difficult to make a living in the sport as a coach. Uh, most don't. 
Mm-hmm. So now it's how do you do? Do you, you need obviously some amount of business acumen to start with? That's super helpful, but then it gets nuanced as to how you go about doing it because the, the structure is challenging. Uh, at least the way I see it, you've had too many coaching certificates and and uh, some of decent quality, some very poor quality, and it's almost a minefield as to where the new coach should go or what he or she should do. So some, as you know, have come to your sessions uh, to use you as an example to be mentored from, and that's one way to do it. And but it's costly, it's time consuming, but it's what's necessary. When we grew up, uh, let's take, and I've used this example, by the way, on our podcast before. If Michael Phelps, since everybody knows that name, said, I want to coach, and he goes to his coach, Bob Bowman, and says, I want to start coaching, Bob. Could I help you with, the, you know, with your program here? Bob's going to say, hey, Michael, see those little six-year-old kids? Go start down there and start helping them. Yep, exactly. And then when you get good at that after a year, go to the eight-year-olds, then the 12-year-olds, then the 15-year-olds, and then maybe in five years, you're up here next to me. That's it, where it starts, right? And, and it would be if if it was Michael Phelps, it would still be start with the twelve year olds, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever it might be. And uh, we don't have that system in place uh, yet. And the way the our structure is set up um, for mentoring, I, I think needs um, needs needs help. I, I agree. The, the 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 two components I would bring out though of that of a young coach is to get involved practically whatever it takes and and if you even if you have a small group of five athletes that are locally get those five athletes together and and run track sessions with them run you know take them on bike rides uh, go and swim all together if necessary but i think some in person uh, community building, but in person, I think is absolutely critical. You have to see athletes move, and and a big part of you know right now, I could just hide behind a keyboard and pontificate, but I would stop learning, even if I had conversations, even if I read every research paper in there, I would stop learning, and um, and so it is critical for me to keep coaching the way that I think about it in person and the other part that's really important and you come back to yourself and your success and you talked about the thirst for continual evolution growth and learning as whatever it takes to surround yourself with with mentors that can help you and and guide you and you can learn from and we could name names of people that have come spoken to us that i have tremendous respect for for coaches uh certainly not a developing coach but julian naji I, i think julian came down to meet meet you didn't he did he come down yes to, yeah. terrific guy yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely you know uh julian came and spent a week with us in now this isn't a developing coach this is an established coach you come and spending time and i think he's gone out to spend time with brett sutton that that's the mindset knowing that it's sometimes cost prohibitive that i think is the only way within this structure that we have inherited in the sport and hopefully can evolve is the only way to truly develop and grow and, and, be, and, and to your point, agreed. And it's because of the structure. Much of the coaching, uh, I, and I want to, and I want to go out on a limb and say the majority of the coaching. So that would be greater than fifty percent. But I would even go way higher than that to go close to probably eighty percent of coaching is done remotely. So we have an inherent problem. Uh, which Olympic sport do you know uh, where the athletes that are in within that sport are not coached directly? one-on-one by their coach not necessarily one-on-one could be in a group session but by a coach at their sessions yep they are not they're they're, they're, they're they're all being they're all hands-on we have an inverted system uh, structurally and that needs to change And, and, and 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 most coaches get into it remotely but ultimately to your point and and you've done this with purple patch uh and evolved it into uh, location-based opportunities it, it, exactly and uh location base and and exactly and uh training camps underneath that as well as in obviously a, a, the foundational place in san francisco i think what that's given born to tangentially that setup has magnified the importance and, and understandably but the importance and therefore the attachment to and then i would say the shackling of metrics and mm-hmm. you know data 
and and data is wonderful it's measurable it's only wonderful if it's if it creates something actionable from it but the the go to the easy fix is just to prescribe based off of a percentage of ftp or a pace per 100 period which is which is fine but that's where the conversation stops and i think that's why we have so many athletes that are obsessive around what power they average over the course but they in parentheses don't know how to ride a bike uh, agree we see it in all all of the three sports uh fortunately for us on the swimming end of the of this the, the first of the three sports there's not as much yet and but it's coming uh pieces of our apparatus to measure uh, to have as much measurement compared to riding or running, especially biking. Uh, but we do have a, a lot of metrics in swimming. You and I grew up with it. it was, there was mm-hmm. there's a pace clock there, and there, and, and there was always that was always being measured. But so that's a, a big data point, uh, and we're, we were obsessed with it. Just as in the example I gave with Lenny Kraselberg, here was the time that I have to do to uh, uh, in my race. Well. It's one piece of the equation, but what's overlooked is that these athletes all have a coach that's present. Uh, although these swimmers were using the clock all the time and they, they, they have the, um, that tool, there was a coach overseeing their sessions, which is what we don't have. And that sort of, pra- sort of that direct practical application is what's much more needed for coaches today, in, in my opinion. Absolutely. The other thing I think that's important in the swimming metrics when you relate the pace clock, which is the best tool in the sport, you because you're because of the environment in a swimming pool, you swim with your head down. So you have to feel and I I call it the inner animal. You have to understand the sensation, but you get immediate feedback of what that feeling was. And that is very different than someone running and looking at their GPS watch and saying, I've got to hit this, and then it diffuses the sense of feeling when it's it's in there. So it's led by, it's feed forward in running quite often with many people versus in swimming. The pace clock is a wonderful tool because it's feedback. Yes, and and, and, and tying both together, we're trying to teach the athletes how to, and the terminology that we use, I use at Tower 26, how to marry an effort, whatever the prescribed effort is, to a time, and you use the word just now, to a feeling. So we become really uh, in touch with, and if you took away eventually the clock, the pace clock in swimming, or the, or the Garmin watch in running, the athlete has learnt that at this moment I am at 70% output or 80% output or 90% output. And that equates to whatever the number is, a seven-minute mile pace or a 530-mile pace or a 12-minute mile pace in yeah. running or 130 per 100 in swimming and so on. Those three have to be connected, an effort or performance to a feeling. We have to learn it. Athletes need to learn it. And, and if they don't, they are going to be in trouble. Well, then races, then they can't optimize their return on race on event day. That's what it's that simple. Don't complicate this stuff. We don't have to complicate any of this. Exactly. There you go. Oh, yeah. You are annoyingly good at doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can probably tell that I quite enjoyed that conversation with Jerry, and uh, he's such a wealth of knowledge, is a a great asset to the coaching world at large, endurance coaching world, and, and obviously the triathlon space, and within that triathlon space, open water swimming. And I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Make sure that you join us for part two coming out in just a couple of days where we're going to extend the conversation, talk about the future of the sport and the characteristics of excellence amongst the best athletes that we've coached. I will say, if you want to hear more from Jerry and you want to learn more about really what his field of expertise is within the sport, open water swimming, head to tower26.com. They have a great subscription program for open water swimming that's easy to integrate into your overall triathlon program. They have a wonderful podcast with a wealth of knowledge, evergreen knowledge, that's now been going on for a couple of years. You're going to just about to spend many, many hours listening to Jerry and his co-host, the personality, Jim Libinski, 
go through a lot of discussions around open water swimming and triathlon. I really encourage you to go over there and listen. And then one other point is that uh, Jerry gave me a little snippet of insight that on October 1st, they're completely redoing their website. It's going to be intuitive to find content and learn more about Tower 26 and the podcast. So www.tower26.com, head there. And as ever, if you have questions from this conversation or comments, just email us questions at purplepatchfitness.com and we'll take it from there.